From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The hackers behind the SolarWinds breach got emails of top Homeland Security Department leaders, according to more than a dozen former and current government officials. The hackers also got the personal schedule of then-DHS Secretary Chad Wolf. The Associated Press confirmed the hackers got into the Federal Aviation Administration, too. That agency said previously it had avoided the hack. The Pentagon Cybersecurity Accreditation Group has a new leader. Matthew Travis, the former deputy director at CISA at DHS, is the new chief executive officer of the CMMC board. FedScoop reports the board's been looking for a CEO since the summer of 2020. The Department of Veterans Affairs is restoring its 20, the 2011 contract it negotiated with the American Federation of Government Employees. The acting executive director of the agency's Office of Labor Management Relations, Ophelia Vicks, says the VA won't charge the union for office space anymore. GovExec reports the agency is also restoring the union's official time. Congressman Andy Kim of New Jersey says when he was a State Department official, the department banned him from working on issues involving the Korean Peninsula, even though he's of Korean descent. Other Asian Americans in and out of government are telling their stories now, too. Ivana Hu is partner and uh, chief executive officer at Omalus and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. She formed a group for Asian American and Pacific Islanders in national security, and they're writing about their experience in Defense One. Ivana, thanks very much for coming on the program. You and your colleagues write in this piece, our target audience is the national security community. The community faces uh, unique challenges such as ethnic profiling in security clearances. At what point did you realize, whether recently or in the past, that this was a shared experience among people in your community? Thanks for having me on. Um, so I guess for me personally, I've been experiencing the much milder version of ethnic profiling or, or racial profiling for the past couple of years, but um, it really intensified the past two years, especially given COVID and this turn from uh, countering um, extremism to great power competition. And so we actually had a group of people on um, that, you know, and we would just kind of complain to each other, but then very slowly we started to realize, especially since a couple of them began to actually run into problems with their um, security clearance processes because they were born in China, for example, but, you know, came to the U.S. when they were two months old, um, that they couldn't get it renewed or that they simply just didn't hear back. Um, and then we're like, oh, there are actual structural issues that need to be addressed that are specific to AAPIs. And that's one of the reasons why we actually decided to start the statement, uh, not only because of the surge of Asian American hate crimes that are happening across the U.S., but also because we're starting to also see this big shift to great power competition. And we started to wonder, well, if we don't speak out now, then when is the right time to do that? We, we have a link to your statement at govmatters.tv slash resources, and you write in it, this statement's meant to start conversations. What kind of conversations do you want to start with this, and where would you like those conversations to lead, Ivana? Fundamentally, we believe that diversity is 
it goes beyond just the cosmetic diversity that a lot of companies and individuals are achieving for right now. And I think, you know, that's a great step. But what we're saying is that diversity is actually mission critical, especially for national security. And so the statement is our starting point. But where we really want to get to are a series of policy recommendations and longer term, a cultural shift in the way that we think about who is your typical national security professional? Is it really a white guy in Oakley sunglasses and beards, you know, super buff, et cetera? Or is it someone who can be, who does not really fit that profile from a physical um, aspect, but is as you know, patriotic and as loyal to the mission? How will you measure success in the effort that you're undertaking, Ivana? What does that look like on the back end? We would like to tackle a couple of key issues uh, from a policy perspective and from a cultural perspective. You know, we are tempering our expectations a little bit and um, just, you know, we, we want people to be more open and more importantly, we want to be looked at as any other American without having to prove um, that we are loyal, um, you know, with if there's no CI concerns or anything like that. Um, and so that's sort of where we want to get to. But from the policy recommendations in the next two to four years, especially under the Biden administration, we really want to tackle security clearance concerns, assignment, um, you know, restrictions, especially at the State Department and USAID, and ultimately also trying to bring back the Lodge Act for Special Forces community. Secretary Blinken has indicated that he's open to this kind of conversation. What will indicate to you that there is action coming behind the words? Internally, within various departments that we have talked to, and this is not just about state departments, it's also about DOD, DHS, et cetera, is ultimately we actually want them to work with us to say, hey, we understand that you have given us a list of policy recommendations and how to implement it, but we also want to sit down with you to so that you can understand where, where we're coming from and how much political capital we actually have to push the even one to two of the recommendations across, whether that's through um, Congress or that's something that's being done internally within the department. Uh, we just have about a, a little bit more than a minute left. Who are the people that you would like to see involved at state and USAID and DHS and uh, the Pentagon and so on that can effectively initiate this change? Not just the secretary at you know, the very top level, executive level, I yes. imagine. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are great diversity task forces that have been set up at each of these agencies so far. So we will continue to work with them. But we also want to work at more of that mid-management level of each of the departments to make sure that we can also help drive some of the cultural and the implementation aspect of it. Ivana, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You can find a link to that statement at govmatters.tv resources. Up next, distributing a billion dollars to agencies for IT modernization. Straight ahead on Government Matters, where's the money going and what are the strings attached? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Department of Labor will get $9.6 million for data infrastructure modernization from the Technology Modernization Fund. It was the first award after the fund got a billion-dollar boost in the latest coronavirus relief bill. Dave Wenigren's chief executive officer of ACT-IAC, former chief information officer of the Navy. Dave, it's great to see you again. As I went down the list to see what the, the overall list was that the Labor Department was added to, something jumped out at me. There are no Defense Department projects on the Technology Modernization Fund list of funded projects. What's that mean to you? Is there any significance that one should draw from that, do you think? Well, well, it's an interesting place to start this conversation because, you know, as we've talked about before, many federal agencies, most federal agencies are spending the majority of their IT budgets sustaining the old and aging legacy base. And so if you're spending the vast majority of your money sustaining the old, you can't really invest in the future, which was why the Technology Modernization Fund is such a sound concept. So if you have a big IT budget and you have the flexibility of finding the way to invest in you, you might not be inclined to use the technology modernization fund, which has some strings attached to it, right? You're going to have to submit a project, project can be reviewed, you'll have to report on the project, and you'll have to repay the project. So my sense is large organizations like military departments have had funding to take care and so the PMF hasn't been that appealing to them yet. Perhaps with the additional money, maybe it will be. And so, okay, so you kind of anticipated my next question. It, does the larger amount of money available make it more potentially more appealing to the military services or to DOD overall because they've got the same legacy problems that the civilian agencies have? Yes, everybody has the same challenge. You know, infrastructure no longer supported by the manufacturer, the need to accelerate adoption to the cloud, but then also the thousands of legacy systems and applications that still exist and the need to take care of them. So um, bigger organizations, bigger investments, right? If, you, if you're a place like the Department of the Navy or the Department of the Army, your, your needs are probably larger than smaller civilian agencies. So, yes, I think the additional money might be attractive. With the big infusion that is coming, do you expect to see a gold rush, civilian or DOD, do you expect to see a bunch of agencies going, okay, now we can dive in the deep end here, where before with the smaller amounts of money it didn't look appealing? Well, I hope so. Because if you think about it, the MGT, Modernizing Government Technology Act, passed in December of 2017, over the first three years or so, we Congress appropriated $175 million. So a billion dollars is a big investment. On the $175 million, we've launched projects of a little over $100 million. If we get to a year from now, and we've only invested a little bit of this additional money, there will probably not be an appetite to continue to do major investments. Right? And so I think it's crucial that we jump on now how do you get more projects into the future? How can we accelerate and streamline the process for identifying projects, approving them, and then, but also perhaps doing a combination of push and pull, where in addition to asking agencies to come with projects, maybe we're a little bit more directive about HCA, you need to do things, be more directive about how 
Because I have to imagine that if we don't show demonstrable results within a year or so, there won't be a lot of appetite to continue to invest. And the federal IT budget is $90 billion a year. So a billion dollars is hard, but it will take more than a billion dollars to finish this transformation. Is the timeline that Congress requires, at least in its mind, to see success reasonable for agencies to be able to show that success in order to demonstrate that this billion dollars was worth it and that it should perpetuate itself? Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a given that expectations will be high. We do see that IT modernization efforts work best when they stay ahead of the pace of technology change. So if you take years to implement a solution, you'll already be behind by the time you launch. And so, you know, we could debate whether expectations are reasonable, but the fact of the matter is the expectations do exist. And so if you can do modular IT modernization efforts that deliver results in months instead of years, and you can demonstrate those results and some type of return on investment, then I think you'll see enthusiasm continue. Do you think the billion dollars means that we'll see a few larger programs, a lot of programs a similar size of what exists today, or all of the above, some combination of both, Dave? I, I would think it'd have to be some combination of both. Because, you know, if you think about it, there's, what, 11 or 12 projects have been funded so far. I mean, if every project is a 5 to $10 million project, it will take a lot of projects, a lot of approval processes right, to get launched. And so if you're going to spend this money effectively in the next few years, some of the investments will have to be larger than $2 million. Dave Winterman, thanks very much, as always. Been a pleasure, Francis. Up next, tracking the state of the country's long-term fiscal health. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the government can take steps toward more sustainable spending. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The Government Accountability Office projects that the nation's debt will hit its highest point in history in 2028. After that, debt will grow faster than the gross domestic product. GAO reports after the pandemic, the government should prioritize getting the country on a sustainable long-term path. Susan Irving is senior advisor to the Comptroller General on debt and fiscal issues at GAO. Susan, thanks very much for coming on. You and your colleagues working on this issue for a long time. What's the takeaway, do you think, for agencies from the newest piece of work that you've put out? Well, I think the takeaway in general for the public is that after the pandemic, that is after we have sort of managed to control the COVID pandemic and the economy begins to recover so that we're not worried about crunching it back, that everybody has to look ahead and realize that we're on a path that we cannot stay on. So for, for the agencies, it means, you know, thinking hard about how programs work and about trade-offs within them for OMB and the president. Of course, it's trade-offs between um, various categories of spending and revenues. And for the American people, um, it's thinking hard about sort of not do you want big government or small government, but what do you want and what are you willing to pay for? 
This work includes a section that uh, begins, absent changes, continue spending revenue at unsustainable levels will pose serious challenges to the future. There are two main bullets under that. Consequences of rising debt, uncertainty about the debt limit. Are those the two major things that you believe need to be changed in order to get off that path? Well, the, the debt limit is one particular problem, which is that it sounds like it's a fiscal rule, right? Debt limit. It sounds like it limits debt, but it doesn't. The debt limit was actually enacted to make it easier for Treasury to borrow to finance decisions. What creates debt is the gap between spending and revenues. But when we get close to the debt limit, if Congress fails to act, then you're talking about whether the U.S. government will default. And right now, U.S. Treasuries are considered the safest, uh, you know, most secure, people use them like cash. So that's part of what has to change. But the other thing is that we just have to change the path. We can't, by definition, if debt is growing faster than the economy that supports it, it's not sustainable. And we would not want to face the next crisis or, you know, a, a, the next major natural disaster, the, another pandemic. Um, anything like that, with this size of a gap between spending and revenues. We you, want the room to respond. You write about the effects of compounding interest. That's not as much of a concern today because money's cheap. Uh, interest rates are low all around the world. But there's a lot of expectation in the business community that that's not going to last. Is that maybe the biggest danger about all of the things that you write about, is that we won't be able to refinance or continue to to pay low interest rates on the money that we've borrowed? I'm not worried about refinancing. I'm really worried about refinancing at a reasonable cost. Because Treasury securities are so safe, there is a flight to quality. But it is true that when you're running this large a debt, a little tiny change in interest rates, you know, either helps you a lot if they go down or hurts you a lot if it goes up. And interest is one of the fastest growing parts of the spending. I mean, it's true that debt as a share of the economy, the interest payments are no higher than they were when debt was lower. But even at very low interest rates, that's a lot of money and it's growing fast. And it's money you can't use for um, defense, for domestic priorities or for tax cuts. We pay interest first. Um, this, another section of this report uh, references executive agencies and, and Congress and opportunities for those organizations. One of them you write about is addressing improper payments. Is that getting better or is that getting worse? A lot of attention paid to it in the Bush administration, in the Obama administration, in the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration. Are we seeing progress? And you're just mentioning it because it continues to be an issue? Or is it getting, maybe staying neutral or getting worse? I think we're seeing progress across some areas. We still have problems with the reporting. And, and really, um, as my colleagues who spend much of their time on this issue could tell you, it's much easier or better to set up systems that can stop the improper payment rather than trying to recoup it. So I wouldn't say it was getting worse, but it's not getting better fast enough. <laughs> Is there a rate at which it's reasonable to expect improper payments to kind of be, uh, for lack of a better term, in check? I mean, I, it strikes me that zero is not a reasonable number to aim for when the government's pushing out as much as it's pushing out, not even before the pandemic. But yeah. at, now that we're pushing out so much more, is there a number 
maybe it's never politically possible I, to say it's okay to have this much <laughs> improper, this many improper payments. Well, it is true that government, the concept of materiality is sort of awkward in this sense. I, I actually don't know enough detail about improper payments to know that. I know that you're right. I think zero is an unreasonable goal, or it can be a goal, but you're not going to get there. There's going to be a mistake. And there are going to be some improper payments where the money is going to be owed, but the person didn't document it right. But what you want to stop is things like, um, in cases like where some of much of the EITC improper payments are from paid tax preparers. Well, GAO has suggested regulating the paid tax preparers. Or because the instructions are very, very complicated for the low-income people for whom it's aimed. And other areas where there is confusion and some where there is fraud. And I think we... It still needs to go down, but and I couldn't give you a number. I'm sorry. We have less than a minute left, Susan, and your your sorry. colleague, uh, Comptroller General Dodaro, was on the program a couple of weeks ago talking about the high risk list. Um, you closed this work by writing about the high risk list and the, the potential that exists there. Thirty seconds left. What's the greatest potential on the high risk list to contribute to greater fiscal health? I don't know that GAO has a position on that. I think for me, the fiscal risks associated with climate change and therefore planning for resilience so that the disasters cost less or maybe are less destructive, for, in terms of long-term fiscal outlook, that's a huge one. Susan Irving, thank you very much. It's wonderful to have you on the program. Thank you for having us. You can find a link to that work at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the program, it's on our website, too. You get a preview of every show when you get our daily program guide right on your phone. It's You text GovMatters to 58671 to get it. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.